insanely good to be back. Um, I'm grateful, Rich, to you for filling in the Word twice. Um, it's a delight to have a man like Rich, a co-laborer like him, to be able to handle the Word like he does. That's rare. There have been many pastors in church history who have not had a man like Rich um, to be able to handle the Word in that way. And, and he's not the only one here, but I'm grateful to you, Rich, for that. But I want to begin by saying that you know, one of the deepest things about us that makes us truly human, that makes us unique and set apart from animals, for instance, is that we all have within us what I like to call an appetite for the transcendent. We have within us an appetite for the transcendent. What I mean by that is, is that we all have within us this insatiable longings for the supernatural. Don't we? We have within us this internal embedded longing and fascination for what is otherworldly and even extraterrestrial. I mean, why do you think it is that for centuries mankind has been fascinated with vampires and werewolves and Martians and aliens? It's not because those things actually exist, but it's because there's a theological reason for their obsession. And the reason is worship. We were made to long to experience and encounter the transcendent and supernatural. Those kinds of things intrigue us precisely because they represent an encounter with the unknown. They intrigue us because they represent an encounter with another dimension that we long to experience. I mean, why do you think it is that the U.S. government spends, get this, $9 billion a year on space exploration? Nine billion dollars a year. What are they looking for? You know what they're looking for. They're looking for something out there. That they hope they will find that is majestic and worthy of our worship. That's 560 billion dollars spent since 1958 in search of something out there that is majestic and worthy of our worship. Something that will give them meaning and significance beyond this life. And guess what? Something beyond this world that gives us meaning and significance is exactly how the Apostle John begins his letter, which means he begins talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When God became a man. And the reason why he begins his letter this way, you know, you know, is because there were a group of false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And among other things, they had denied the incarnation. There was a smooth talking, influential, undercover cult group that had crept into the churches of Asia Minor where John had had a ministry for the last 30 years. And like a mama bear protecting her cubs, he writes a letter with claws and teeth designed to protect these churches from these monsters and the rabies of their heresy. And by the time John wrote this letter, it was not too late, mind you. It was not too late the damage had been done. These people were rattled and fearful. They were baffled and confused. Why? Because these teachers, they came with these plausible sounding arguments about a, about a secret knowledge that called into question some of the most sacred doctrines of the Christian faith, like the incarnation, like the deity of Christ, like the atonement of Christ. And so John, with the skilled expertise of a shepherd theologian, puts pen to paper and crafts a letter designed to do one ultimate thing in their lives, namely, give them glad-hearted assurance and joy that those who belong to Christ by faith do, in fact, have eternal life. That's what he's doing. Assurance is the issue. Confidence is the issue. Not confidence in themselves or anything that they have done, but assurance, assurance that salvation, the treasure of salvation, is theirs by virtue of their union by faith in Jesus Christ. 
I see you have to understand, you have to understand here that the foundational event, get this now, the foundational event that gives us the assurance that our salvation is even possible is when God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. When the Son of God emerged onto the scene of history as God and man, the God-man, And so what John is about to do over the next three weeks in chapter one, he's about to do the classic two birds, one stone approach. Get this now. What he's going to do is he is going to give his people assurance of their salvation on the one hand, but with the exact same words, he is going to obliterate the heresy that threatened them on the other with the exact same words, two birds, one stone. And the first stone that John slings is the close encounter with Jesus Christ in his incarnation, which is exactly what these teachers denied. And I don't know how often you think about the incarnation, what it is, what it means, why it matters, and why it changes everything. But John this morning is going to force us to slow down and pause and ponder and consider and savor and enjoy and apply to our lives the foundational historical event that guarantees our salvation. Namely, when the Word became flesh. So follow me to 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to look only at verses 1 through 4 this morning, and I want us to have a close encounter with the word of life. A close encounter with the word of life. Here's where we're going over the next three weeks. Next three weeks are going to all be in uh, 1 John chapter 1. Over the next three weeks, I want you to see from this chapter three foundations of salvation. Three foundations of salvation to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. That's where we're going. Three foundations of salvation to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. And this morning, we're only going to look at the first foundation of salvation. The first salvation foundation, and here it is, number one, the historical evidence for our salvation. The historical evidence for our salvation. Because you know, the Apostle John would not make a great swim teacher, but he makes a fantastic theologian. And the reason for that is because without warning, he grabs us by the hand and he yanks us into the deep end of the theological pool and the waters that fill that end of the pool are glimmering with the glory of Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, I want you to notice how it is that John begins his letter in verses 1 and 2. Notice the peculiarity of his language. Look what he says. That which was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was made manifest. Stop there. Do you notice what John does? Rather, what he doesn't do? You understand what this is, is a letter. Like a stick in the mail and send kind of letter. And yet you notice what John doesn't do. There's no hello, no how are you, no I miss you, no grace and peace to you. John doesn't even take the time to put his name on the letter. Why? Because because the subject is too grand. The situation is too urgent to play around with pleasantries. Instead, John begins his letter with intrigue. Like a mystery novel that pulls us in with cryptic and mysterious language. And yet the question is, what is he talking about? (laughs) Rather, who is he talking about here? Well, we know it's Christ. We know that it's Christ that he's talking about, but let's pretend like we didn't. Let's pretend like we didn't. Let's pretend like we didn't know that these first three verses are all about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's follow John's logic a phrase at a time and let him unfold for us the physical arrival of Jesus Christ to the planet to save the human race. And then let's spend the rest of the time considering why the incarnation means absolutely everything. So let's begin first with the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation of Christ. I've got three sub-points. The first one is the incarnation of Christ in verse 1. Look again at the text. That which was from the beginning, he says. What we have 
heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Again, it's just so fascinating to me that he begins his letter like this. I mean, why didn't he just say, dear church, I'm writing to you this morning because I'm going to write to you about the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ to the planet. I'm going to write to you about the incarnation. He could have just said that, but he didn't. Why? I mean, why use a riddle to talk about Christ when he could have just plainly stated the subject of his letter? And I'll tell you why. Because John is both a poet and a theologian. He wants to grip us with the beauty and the reality of the incarnation. It would be kind of like if I said this to you in a civics class. If I opened a lecture at a civics class and I said this. Who was born in Virginia in 1732. Who was a commander in the Revolutionary War. Whose paintings we have seen. Whose speeches we have heard. Who was our nation's first president of him. I am declaring to you. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about George Washington. But you see, I'm naming my subject without naming my subject. And that's exactly what John is doing. And yet, and yet, get this. Now, describing him in this way has the effect of emphasizing the very thing about him that most refuted the claims of the false teachers, namely the incarnation, which they denied. And so notice phrase by phrase in verse 1 how John describes the physical arrival of Jesus Christ. Again, phrase by phrase, verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Whatever his subject is, who we know to be Christ, John says it was from the beginning. He was from the beginning. The beginning of what, John? The beginning of what? What are you talking about? He means the beginning of matter, the beginning of space, the beginning of time, He's talking about the very beginning of the universe here, the creation of the cosmos itself. And so get this, what John is saying is, when the beginning began, Jesus Christ was already there because he never began. John is saying that the one that they had seen and heard and touched and the one in whom we believe had always been there, was there at creation because he had always been there before creation. Which means Jesus Christ is eternal. Which means he's not just a man, he is God. But the beginning is just the beginning. Look where John goes next in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, here it is. What we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. What we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. I mean, you see what John is doing here. What this is, is a multi-sensory experience of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. He says, the one who was eternal, he says, him we have heard heard. We heard him, he says. We didn't just hear about him. We we heard him speak with our very own ears. John says that he and the other apostles are ear witnesses of eternal truth coming out of the mouth of this eternal being. They heard Jesus Christ speak. And do you want to hear something crazy? You have heard him speak too. You have heard him speak too. Not in some mystical voice that you thought you heard in your head one day. But you have heard him speak in the pages of Holy Scripture because that is exactly where he speaks. And him speaking in Scripture, get this now, is just as real, just as credible, just as authoritative as if you had heard him speak live and in person. Because when he speaks in his word, it is live and in person. To have the word is to have Christ himself. Why? Because what this is, what this is, is a portal to the very power and presence and pleasure of Jesus Christ himself. So therefore, if you want your faith to be experientially real and not just theory, you must daily encounter And read and contemplate the sacred text. Because when you do that, you encounter Jesus Christ himself. 
But notice, notice not only did John and the other apostles hear with their ears, they, they saw with their eyes. They saw the Holy One. They saw the Holy One. Look at the text. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, and here it is, Him we have seen with our eyes. I mean, think about what John is doing here. Think about what he is doing. He is rooting our faith in historical fact here. Do you see that? That's exactly what he's doing. In real flesh and blood interactions that actually took place in real history. And in so doing, he is simultaneously obliterating the claims of these, the heretical claims of these false teachers who denied the incarnation. And John says, we've seen him with our eyes. We, just didn't hear, we didn't just hear a, a voice in our heads. We saw a real life person in history. Think about it. They saw him pray to the Father. They heard and saw him preach in the synagogues. They watched him heal lepers with a single touch. They watched him heal diseases from another zip code. They watched him multiply enough bread and fish to feed a football stadium. They saw him stop hurricane winds with his mind powers. They watched him offer salvation to prostitutes and cure cripples and resurrect dead bodies. They saw him crucified, mangled, mutilated, tortured, killed, and then alive after his own resurrection. And so let's just say that what they had seen had certainly made an impression upon them. Don't you see the most outlandish supernatural claims of our faith? are all rooted in actual historical fact that was documented by eyewitnesses and then recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture. We saw him, John says, or as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But there's another way, there's another way in which they experienced the incarnation. Look at what John says. He says, we heard him speak, we saw him with our eyes, and notice what he says. We beheld him. We looked upon him, he says. And maybe you're thinking, well, John, you already said that. That's kind of repetitive. You already said you saw him. Now you say you beheld him. Yeah, right. But the problem is, the thing is, the word there is more intensive. Maybe the word investigated would be closer to the idea. This isn't just some casual glance that you didn't think about at the time. Rather, what this is, is an intensive term that considers, that contemplates, that interprets, that scrutinizes the significance of the object. I mean, think about it. The disciples, they, they thoroughly examined every single aspect of their Messiah. They watched his every move. They scrutinized his every action. For three straight years, they had front row seats to supernatural power, the only explanation of which, this is God himself. And yet it's not as if they watched Christ on TV or they watched him from the nosebleed seats at a stadium. No, John says they also touched him with their very hands. Look at the end of verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. You see what John is doing, right? Two birds, one stone. At the deepest theological level, he is dismantling the bogus claims of these false teachers on the one hand and giving us the deepest foundation of our faith on the other because God became a man. And he says, we touch the word of life, John says. I mean, the savior of the world was no phantom or ghost or spirit like these teachers claimed. He was no, he was no emanation of the divine. He was no idea or mystical power. Jesus Christ is not a force or a philosophy. No, Jesus Christ is a person. And they had physical contact, no social distancing with someone who was eternal, but revealed himself in human history as a real, literal, historical human being. And yet you notice what John calls him. He calls him the Word. The Word of Life. And John loves this word, the Word, doesn't he? He loves that word. 
It's exactly how it began as gospel, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And yet the question is, what does it mean for Jesus Christ to be the Word? I mean, what's the significance of the title? I mean, what does that even mean? It kind of sounds sort of philosophical. I mean, well, what is this, John? I mean, why, why not call him, oh, I don't know, the Son of Man? The Son of God? The King of Israel? That's a good one. The Lamb of God? Why not just Jesus? John, what are you doing calling him the Word? Why are you doing this? And I'll tell you why he is. He calls him the Word. Get this now. Because our God is a talking God. He is a talking God. I mean, you realize that in the Old Testament, over 1,900 times, it, it says, thus says the Lord. You open up to the first page, Act 1, Scene 1 in the Bible, and what do you discover? You, you discover that God spoke. God speaks, and a universe appears. God speaks and he saves his people. God speaks and he delivers. God speaks and he judges. God speaks and he reveals exactly who he is. The point is to call him the word is to say that Jesus Christ is the ultimate speech act of the living God. He is the ultimate expression of the living God because he himself is God. Do you see? God spoke for centuries and centuries in human history, but he spoke most loudly when he came to the planet as a human being and spoke in the person of his son. And get a load of this, when John calls him the word of life, what does the word of mean? It has meaning. He means the word who is life. He is the word who is life. He is life itself. Meaning when you have him, you have the meaning of life. Life, how you were created to live. And how were you created to live? Eternal life. Which is not merely living a really long time, but life created, life how we were created to live, namely the eternal enjoyment of God as the treasure of our souls. So my question is this morning, do, do you feel the wonder of the incarnation this morning? Do you, do you see the necessity of the incarnation? Not just to prove that Christianity is true, which it does, of course, but do you see the logical necessity of the incarnation both to save your soul and to sanctify your soul? I mean, you understand, for anyone to get saved, God had to become a human being and save the human race from the inside out. You know that, right? But you see... The same one who saves is the same one who sanctifies, who makes us holy. But how does he do that? How does he do that? Think about it. As a man, Jesus Christ is our sympathetic high priest. As a man, he experienced all of the agonies of being human, didn't he? He understands. He knows he gets it. He knows exactly what you need as a human because he himself became a human and lived it all. Loneliness, he's been there. Temptation, no one experienced more. Heartbreak and sorrow, abandonment from people, rejection, pain, suffering, crucifixion and death bottom line this is a god who knows how to sympathize this is a god who knows how to deliver his people from temptation and he is always present he is always there he is always poised always ready in the word ready to provide exactly what you need for every single temptation that afflicts you But that brings us next to the identification of Christ. The identification of Christ. Still speaking about Christ, look what he says in verse 2. The one who was from the beginning, who we heard, who we saw with our eyes, beheld, our hands handled concerning the word of life. Here it is, verse 2. And the life was made manifest. And we have seen 
And we are testifying and we are proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. I mean, the more John speaks, the more specific he becomes. Right? This can only be a description of Christ himself. But you notice, you notice that he moves from calling him, notice, be good detectives, he moves from calling him the word of life in verse 1 to the life in verse 2. Literally, the life. Jesus Christ is the life. I mean, we, we, we blow by things like that too quickly when you do not consider the monumental weight and significance. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the life? What a staggering declaration to make. It means, it means that eternally significant, satisfying life, we know this, is not found in possessions or pleasures or pursuits. It's not found in achievements, applause, or the adoration of human beings. No, it is found in access to a person. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That all things are loss. All things are loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. The question is, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe it is not truly living if Christ is not your life? Do you believe that a life lived apart from Christ at the center of your life is a life of soap bubble futility? Silly, fragile, empty, temporary things that will not last and cannot fulfill the deepest longings of the soul. Do you believe that all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished is what you were made to enjoy forever? That's what it means that He is the life. But you notice, you notice John gets very three-dimensional and tangible here when he says that the life, get this, the life was made manifest. What is that? It's the incarnation. Again, the incarnation. The life was made manifest. The author of life, the source of life, appeared on the scene of human history. Put it this way. The author of life became a man to give life to the world by giving his life to save the world. He, he's talking about the, the, the incarnation and the mission of Jesus Christ. And thinking about his mission and incarnation reminds me of this movie as a kid that I was just fixated, riveted by as a kid called um, Dreamscape. A movie called Dreamscape. It was this sci-fi thriller about a company who invented a way to cure people who suffered from recurring nightmares. And how they did that was by, was by inventing a machine Inventing a machine that you hook up to the person who's having the nightmares and simultaneously to a person at the company who, get this, they rigged a way where the person at the company would actually be inside of their nightmare and from the inside out navigate that person out of the nightmare so that they wouldn't be haunted anymore in their sleep. And the helper would fight monsters and terrors and the dark things that lurk in people's minds and in their nightmares. And you see, the point is, that is precisely what Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, didn't he? He entered into the nightmare of human history to navigate God's elect out of sin and darkness and into the paradise of his kingdom. And if you don't know Christ... If you don't actually know him, I just want you to know that, that you are stuck in the recurring, inescapable nightmare of your own sin and slavery and darkness and depravity. And the only hope for you and for the entire human race, the only hope is the one who entered into the nightmare of human history to be treated as sinners deserve for sins he did not commit. The point is, if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, now is the time to yield, to attach yourself by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. But watch what John does in verse 2. 
he begins to explain why it is that he wrote this letter in the first place. Look what he says. He says, the life was made manifest. He was incarnate. And we've seen him, he says. And we are testifying. And we are proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. I mean, you see this. John is not some sentimental old man simply retelling of his glory days with Jesus. No, he is preaching here. He is trying to persuade here. He is trying to rescue people here. This is urgent. This is weighty. This is gripping. This is intense. That's why he says we are testifying as in a court of law, presenting all the evidence you need to have the assurance of eternal life. But notice, notice at the end of verse 2 what it is that John calls him. This is absolutely staggering. He says, we are proclaiming to you, verse 2, we are proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You know, John is the master of deception in a good way. What I mean is his words and grammar that he uses are are really, really simple. They're not complex at all. And yet the truths they contain melt the hard drive of our minds. Because did you notice the third title that John applies to Christ? First, he was the word of life. Then he was the life in verse 2. But here, now, he calls him the eternal life which was with the Father. John's sentences are like diamonds. The longer you look, the more beauty you see. Because get this. That verb there, was with the Father. There's a Trinitarian theology embedded in that verb, was. There's a Trinitarian theology embedded in that verb, was. Because in this context, that verb, was, suggests the possibility that before Christ appeared on the planet, He was always and forever with the Father. Meaning that before time began, for all eternity, that the Father and Son dwelt together in Trinitarian love and glory and affection, and that is exactly what happened. And John 17 tells us the whole thing, doesn't it? Unbelievable. And isn't it almost inconceivable to you that one of the things they were doing in eternity past was crafting a plan of salvation that would unfold in human history? And isn't it even more almost inconceivable to you that the ultimate reason why you are saved this morning is because your name came up in a conversation between the Father and Son before time began. That you were chosen. That you were predestined. That you were singled out and selected for salvation when nothing existed except God Himself. But notice, notice again the title by which John refers to Christ. We are proclaiming to you the eternal life. Think about that. What does it mean to call Christ eternal life? What does that mean? Notice what the text does not say. The text does not say that he gives eternal life, although he does. The text does not say he is the source of eternal life, although he is. The text says he himself is eternal life. John, what are you saying? You need to ponder this. And what he is saying is one of the most staggering, staggering realities of our salvation found in the pages of Scripture. Because here's the question. If you could get to heaven, if you could have eternal life and get to heaven and have no pain, no disease, no COVID, no tears, no death, all your family there, all the food you ever wanted. You had all of the comforts that you could imagine. But Jesus Christ were not there. Could you still be happy? Could you still be happy in heaven if Jesus Christ were not there? 
That's a pretty provocative question, right? Because most people would answer, yes, I could still be happy in heaven even if Jesus Christ were not there because that's a far better alternative to what I have here. But the problem is, the problem is if you answer yes to that question, you have missed the ultimate reason why you were saved in the first place. And why we were saved was not to get us to a place, but to get us to a person. John calls Christ the eternal life. Get this now, because enjoying Jesus Christ is the essence of what eternal life is. You have to understand eternal life is not just to have your sins forgiven, although that does happen. It's not just to receive escape from eternal hell, although that's true, and we're really grateful. And eternal life isn't even to get to heaven. Eternal life is to get you to a person who is your treasure and delight that you enjoy with ever-increasing joy and intensity forever and ever and ever and ever. The question is, did you know that? Did you know that when you trusted Christ for salvation that He was the ultimate prize you were signing up for? Did you know that salvation was never ever intended to be something that you enjoy outside of or in addition to Jesus Christ? That He is the treasure, that He is the prize, that He is the bread of life, that He is the fountain of living waters to the soul? Because I found the experience of many Christians is that getting saved, their expectations are, are that getting saved is to be a life of eternal convenience. Life of things going eternally the way I want them to go. But it's not. It's not that. It's categorically, profoundly not that. It's not that. Instead, it is a life of eternal captivation with the God-man, Jesus Christ. The question is then, if Christ is the prize, if Christ is the gold medal prize of the Christian life, then the question becomes, what for you are the silver and bronze blessings that are threatening to take his place. Do you see anything? Do you see anything in your life that is threatening to take the supreme place of Christ in your souls? Do you see anything? Because if you did, what do you do? If you did begin to suspect that something was about, that something was encroaching on the holy ground of your heart and threatening to take the supreme place of Jesus Christ, what do you do? And the answer, the answer to our idolatrous leanings for things other than Christ is always, always, always to go back to the text. And to be reconvinced by the matchless beauty of the incarnate Son. You go to John 1. You go to Colossians 1. You go to Hebrews 1. You go to Revelation 1. And there you will find on full display all the reasons why Jesus Christ puts all the trinkets that charm us most to absolute shame. But then look at the end of verse 2. Look at the, John makes the point again. The eternal life. The eternal life who is always with the Father robed himself, as it were, with a garment of human flesh and became a man. This is the incarnation. This is the foundation of our salvation. Which brings us finally to the instruction about Christ. The instruction about Christ, verses 3 and 4. The instruction about Christ. And here, John clarifies even further what exactly this letter is designed to do. Because you understand how... how tender the situation was at these churches. You understand that the situation was pretty rocky and raw at these churches. Again, the reason for that is because these slimy con men had absorbed their way into the bloodstream of this body and with their teaching, they had caused division and suspicion. And you can kind of see it between the lines in verse 3. Look at the text. He says, what we have seen and we have heard, we are proclaiming to you. Why? Why are you proclaiming this, John? Notice, so that you would have fellowship with us. 
And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now that's a little complex, but do you, can you follow his argument? He's saying, what we have seen and we have heard, we are proclaiming to you. What had they seen? What had the apostles seen and heard? What was John proclaiming to them in this letter? The thing he's been talking about the whole time. The, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And yet the question is, okay, the, the question is, alright, if this, if this whole letter of 1 John, John is writing about the incarnate Son, why is he writing this? What is his purpose? What is his aim? What is the goal? Look at the text. That was very carefully what he says. We, him, that is Christ, we are proclaiming to you. Why? So that you would have fellowship with us. That's the issue. Fellowship is the issue. Because again, you see that the problem is these false teachers, like all false teachers, they were elitist, cliquish, a divisive group of people that showed hostility and antagonism to anyone who didn't buy into what they were selling or anyone who they would feel was too stupid to buy into what they were selling. They were dividing people against pastors, pulling people away from the apostles' teaching. They had a special club, a secret society of enlightened ones who alone had access to the truth. They may have even used the word fellowship. And you see, the price of admission into their fellowship was to deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1, here's how you know the spirit of the evil one. The one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's why John spends so much time on the incarnation. Why? Why is he talking about this? I mean, what, what does this matter? You know why he spends so much time talking about the incarnation? Because it is the basis for true fellowship. And he says they're not the enlightened ones. They don't have the fellowship. Why? Because fellowship only exists when you affirm and love right doctrine about Jesus Christ. Which is why we can't fellowship with Mormons. Or Jehovah's Witnesses. Or Muslims. And even in many cases, Roman Catholics. I know that sounds crazy. But, but, I, but I don't mean we shouldn't be friendly. I don't mean that we shouldn't be friendly and gracious and kind and winsome and have them into our homes and, and eat meals with them and try to talk to them about matters of eternal importance. We absolutely should do that. We should be the most polite and gracious and kind and winsome people on the planet. But that doesn't mean we can have true biblical fellowship with them because true biblical fellowship only exists between people who love and trust the Christ of Holy Scripture, which is the only Christ there is. And so what this does is raise the question. The, the question is, okay, what is this thing called fellowship? Well, what are we talking about here? Okay, John is writing this in, in some measure because he wants the people to know that true fellowship only exists with he and the apostles and everyone else who puts their faith in Christ. Fellowship only exists with them. Okay, so what does he mean by fellowship? What does John in the Bible mean by this? Because we use the word all the time, right? And we should, but we should probably make sure that our definition matches up with the Bible's definition. And that word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, literally has the idea of sharing something together in common. That's fellowship. Sharing something together in common. It's not just something that we do, it is also something that we share. It is a bond that we have, something that connects us together. For instance, veterans of war have a fellowship because of shared experience in battle, right? Biker gangs have a fellowship because of shared love for motorcycles and leather jackets, I guess. Red Sox fans have a fellowship because their mutual hatred for the most diabolical and sinister sports team on the planet called the New York Yankees. You get the idea? The 
point is, whatever it is that we share in common, whatever it is that we share in common, binds us together in affection and solidarity. Right? Whatever it is we share in common binds us together in affection and solidarity. And the deeper the thing in common we share, the more fierce our affection and solidarity becomes. Agreed? So the question is, what is our fellowship? What is our koinonia? What is the criteria for our camaraderie together? What is that thing that binds us together at the deepest possible level? What did John just tell us? What binds us together? Even though we're different, and there might be Yankees fans, for all I know, and that's a crime for which you should repent. But there is something that connects us together in the deepest possible way. What is that? It is our affection and allegiance to the God who became man for us and for our salvation. That's it. It's not our preferences. It's not our political opinions. Not our personalities, not because our, our kids are the same age. No, what connects us is the incarnate Lord of the universe who has all authority in heaven and on earth. My question is, is that your criteria for camaraderie? That's why this whole COVID thing feels a little risky right now. Not because it's not important, but it's because there's all sorts of extra sort of secondary, tertiary issues that could pose a threat to and, and bring about division in the body. Masks or no mask? How serious do we take it? Who do we listen to? To whom do we ascribe? What stats are we supposed to listen to? How are we supposed to do this? Is it six feet or ten feet? I mean, do you, I mean, so there's all these things. And what we need more than ever is to be connected together. The criteria of our camaraderie has to be the incarnate Son of God loving Him and treasuring Him more than ever. Is that your criteria for camaraderie? Do you see the incarnation of Christ and everything that He accomplished as that which binds us together in the deepest possible way? We are a body. We are a family. We are connected together. Because I'll just tell you, when we get angry with one another over our preferences, when we get bitter and we refuse to reconcile, with one another. When we hold grudges and gossip and we sort of just shrink into our private little worlds, our claustrophobic kingdoms, our little echo chambers of self-affirming greatness, it is precisely because we are defined by something other than Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, not as a guilt technique, but just as a way of being honest, do you veer away and dodge people in the church whose personalities and preferences grate on you? Are you the kind of church attender that just kind of sneaks in and sneaks out? Because if you stay too long, then that might require you to have to be vulnerable with what's really going on. Are your conversations in the car as you drive home filled with criticism and complaints? I'll just tell you, those right there, those are the cringy manifestations of what it looks like when Christ has been replaced. That you have a different criteria other than Christ that you use as the basis of your camaraderie for other people. But what this does then is raise the question. Okay, if that's true, if that's true that Christ is our koinonia, Christ is our, the basis for our camaraderie to one another, then the question then becomes, okay, well, what does our fellowship taste like? In other words, what should the experience of our relationships with one another be like in real time? What should they be like? And here's what's really interesting. John has already answered the question because he tells us that true fellowship tastes like the Trinity. Look again at verse 3. Notice what he says. This is profound. This is what I mean when I say John is the master of deception. He'll just say things and you blow right by it and then you stop to think about it. It's like, what has he just said? 
Notice, what we have seen and what we have heard, we are proclaiming also to you. Why? In order that you would have fellowship with us. Notice, and even our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see what He did? Do you see what He did there? How he defined fellowship, this is an incredible thing. This is staggering because he literally just defined fellowship as sharing together in the life of the Trinity. He's saying, our fellowship, me and the apostles, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And when you fellowship with us, he says, or anyone else joined by faith in Christ, what you are getting in that moment is not actually us, but the Father and the Son through us. That's fellowship. That, 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 that's what I believe he is intimating. The true, authentic fellowship in the local church, when it's being done right, is ultimately the experience and enjoyment of the Trinity in and through one another. That's fellowship. That's profound. That's staggering. That's, that's unbelievable. What is fellowship? How is fellowship? Did, did you have fellowship with anyone today? Yes. I experienced the triune God from Tommy Thomason. I experienced the triune God from Eric Avakis. That's fellowship. So what that tells us, right? I mean, there, there's, there's staggering implications to this for, for life in the local church. In fact, I'm going to close with three implications that this fellowship has for us in life in a local church, and this church in particular. Number one, implication number one, John's definition of fellowship here, which he is defining as enjoying the Trinity in and through one another, enjoying the Father and Son in and through one another, that's fellowship, that radically changes what it means to feel connected at a local church, doesn't it? It radically changes what that means. Because feeling connected at a local church is not some, based on some instant chemistry or feelings of momentum and excitement. It's not, it's not because there's programs for my kids, but Church 101 tells us that feeling connected is based on fellowship. And the essence of fellowship is to mediate and display the triune God in and through His Word to one another. Biblical fellowship is a two-way street. I need you and you need me. Or should I say, I need the triune God from you and you need the triune God from me. And when we make it our ambition to make one another's spiritual growth our top priority, what we're experiencing in that moment is the Father and the Son. And when that happens, then we will feel connected. Number two. Implication number two. True, authentic fellowship with one another is created and cultivated by our own personal meditation and saturation with Holy Scripture. Say that again. True, authentic fellowship with one another, if this happens or not, is cultivated and created by our personal meditation and saturation with Holy Scripture, which makes sense, right? The Word of God is the portal by which we gain access to the power and presence and, and pleasure of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, get this now, all fellowship is, is the supernaturally organic overflow of our own abiding in Christ. Which means we impoverish one another. We deprive one another we malnourish one another. We starve one another when we do not seek our own private highest joy in God through His Word. The most loving service that you can render to another human being is to have your soul drenched and satisfied in the Scriptures. Implication number three. Implication number three, John's definition of fellowship get this now, helps us to love one another with radical affection even when we get burned or snubbed or hurt 
were overlooked, which has and will happen to all of us. It has and it will happen again. It will. Right? Why? Because the, what is the church? The church is a, is a recovery room of ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters. The one who began the church, the founder of the church, was impaled on a Roman torture device of Roman execution. I mean, what, I mean, what were you expecting? Look at us. Look at us. We're, we're, we're once totally depraved and throw us together. Hurt and pain and being overlooked and snubbed is going to be inevitable. And yet, and yet, it is precisely our cosmic Trinitarian bond with one another that helps us not only to overlook offenses, but even shapes and guides how we respond when we are hurt by one another, namely with patience, forgiveness, and love. I mean, you see what John's doing. You just take a step back and you just see what he's doing here. He's showing us at the deepest possible level, profound level, that doctrine and theology matter to a life, to the life of a local church. Isn't that what he proved? That, that the incarnation of the Trinity, it means everything. It means everything. It shapes the way we do church. It shapes our relationships with one another. But finally, notice what he does in verse 4, and then I close with this. Verse 4. He says, these things we are writing to you in order that our joy would be fulfilled. Did you catch that? Our joy. Not, not yours. Our joy. Our joy. I'm writing this, John says, so that my joy and the apostles' joy would be made full. John, you selfish little man. It's all about your joy, huh? Well, yes, actually, if his highest joy is rooted in theirs, and that's exactly what he means. You see, John cannot and will not rest. He cannot and will not have his highest joy knowing that some of his people are struggling and on the brink of disaster. This is the revelation of a pastor's heart here. A pastor who delights in his people. Whose personal joy is bound up with his people. That's what pastors want. Not, not to control or manipulate their people. What they want is the highest joy of their people as they treasure and prize and delight in the salvation purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ. And that, therefore, brings pastors their highest joy. And so thinking about the letter of 1 John, and I close with this. This letter is going to do many things to us that we may not like at first. It's going to bite. It's going to cut. It's going to sting. It's going to bruise. It's going to break us. And yet it's going to mend and soothe and repair and satisfy and produce levels of joy in our lives never ever before previously experienced. Why? Because again and again and again it will put us face to face with the God who became man. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the incarnation. Oh Lord, for it is the historical evidence of our faith. Oh Lord, we place all of our trust on that. We lean on that. The thousand ton reality, which is our life, we lean and place upon the reality of the incarnation. Oh Christ, and what is so astounding to us is that you we're not just a historical man in history, although that's true. But you were the eternal God who was always with the Father. And you were made manifest on this earth. John says in his gospel that we beheld his glory. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Lord, I pray, I pray that as we work our way, as we as we traverse our way through this epistle with some of it baffling and staggering and sharp language, the corners, the corners of this letter, Lord, are sharp. 
We need your help. We need your help. We want to grow. We want to be a kind of people who do not crumble under fear. We want to be the kind of people who, who march forth in this world with joyful courage. Oh, Lord, rather than being overwhelmed and drenched with, with the message that the media wants to give to us about all that we should feel and think, I pray that we would be drenched by the message of the letter of First John. And it would produce in us depths of joy and courage. And that that would be used by you to bring great glory to yourself and even lost souls to yourself. Thank you so much for this time together. In your mighty name.